But I want to invite you to take your Bible, and this morning we're going to open up to our, our regular text that we've been studying for a while, and that's Galatians chapter 5. But perhaps you want to just put a marker there, because I'm also going to begin to read out of Matthew chapter 5. So, basically, you want to be at Matthew chapter 5. If you want to put your finger in Galatians, we're going to go right to that as soon as I read this text and pray. But I, per- I wanted to read something out of Matthew chapter 5 that I'm not going to expound upon, but I thought it would just sort of get our minds uh, pre- prepared, I guess, for the topic that we're going to be speaking on today. So in Matthew chapter 5, I want to begin to read it, verse number 38. And if you're there, you can follow with me. It says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto, unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. <clears throat> for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. And I'm going to pause there, and now we'll go to Galatians. But before I read in there, let's have a word of prayer together. Heavenly Father, I again want to say thank you for this time and for this opportunity. And Lord, it really truly is our desire, and I believe I can say this for most of us at least, It is our desire that we want to hear from you. And Lord, we pray that you would please speak to our hearts. We ask that you would give us grace to hear and to obey. And Lord, that you would just have your way in us now. For your glory, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our study has been in Galatians chapter 5. We actually have been studying through the book of Galatians. And I... I don't even want to try to figure out how long, because it's been a while. Uh, And then we made our way here, and we kind of just sort of parked at verse 22 for a while, talking about the fruit of the Spirit. We're actually going to move into verse 23 today, but um, I I have introduced this subject so many times uh, over the, I think this is the sixth message on the fruit of the Spirit, and We know that this is the work of the Spirit of God in our life. There's something that you've heard me speak on quite often throughout our ministry, and it's something that's always been on my heart, and that is the fact that it's clear in the Bible, and I think it's clear for everyone of us that have been truly saved, that salvation makes a distinct difference in a life of a believer, a demonstrable change takes place when one receives Christ as their Savior. And I think it's important for us to understand that because 
for one thing, the Bible says that we are to examine ourselves to see whether we be in the faith. And one of the examinations, or one of the indications, I guess, is the fact that um, if any man be in Christ, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. So as I say, there's, a, you know, there's so many things that take place when you think about through the Scripture. Uh, we, we use the word salvation. We get saved. And what does that refer to? Well, that, that refers to the fact that we were once lost, and as lost, we were in danger of uh, separation from God in eternity in a place the Bible calls hell. Now, when we received Christ, we were saved. We were delivered from that condemnation. The Bible says there is now no, therefore no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. So that's, that's salvation. Uh, we've been regenerated. There's another term the Bible uses, which refers to the new birth. We talk about being born again. And Jesus said that in, to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, ye must be born again. Or else you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And so that's a new birth. We had a physical birth, and then we have a spiritual birth. We're made alive. We were justified. God declaring us righteous based on the righteousness of Christ that's imputed to us, that's given to us when we receive Him as our Savior. And there's many other terms we could go through. Uh, the Bible speaks of adoption. It speaks of... Um, what else? Sanctification, all these kind of terms. But a lot of, so many things take place when a person gets saved. And that cannot happen without uh, a great change taking place within the person, he or she, who believes upon Christ as their Savior. I think all of you understand that and, and agree with that, that when you got saved, there was a definite change. And it's from the inside out. It's something that takes place in the heart. And that all acting in our heart cannot but, can't help but to manifest itself in our actions, in our outward uh, dealings, <coughs> excuse me, and in our attitudes. And so we know this to be true, but what does it look like? What does that change look like? What does that translate to? Does that mean that um, you know, I used to go to the beach on Sunday and now I go to church. Or I used to sleep in on Sunday and now I get up in time for church and Sunday school. Is that, is that the change? Does it mean that I, you know, put away some of the romance novels on my bookshelf and replace them with, um, not that I ever had those, but I'm just saying, with, <laughs> I replace them with uh, Christian authors? Um, does it mean that, you know, I have a Bible and carry it around and <clears throat> frequently read it? Is, is that the change that takes place? Well, for sure, those are some of the uh, things that no doubt have changed in many of your lives. But, you know, somebody can just begin to do that, live by a certain code, decide to uh, become religious, as they say. But that does not necessarily... Um, indicate that they have been transformed on the inside. The transformation that happens on, in the heart will demonstrate itself in those manners, as I've mentioned. 
But what, what does it look like when it comes to the, really the attitudes of our heart? And basically, uh, we have at least part of the answer, a large part of the answer in these verses. Because the fruit of the Spirit begins to become evident in the life of a Christian. And that fruit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Those are the things that the Holy Spirit of God changes when He works the work of salvation in our heart. These things become part of us. They, and, and you say, well, you know, perhaps you were always a gentle person or a kind person. But we've said that many times, I've told you that this is, it's, it's uh, described as fruit singular, even with these nine characteristics of the fruit. Because I think, I think when I think about that is that some of us may, by our, uh, our temperament, be, have some of those that seem to already be there. But if you go through this list of nine, you're going to definitely find some that you say, boy, that's one I need help with. And it's the Holy Spirit of God. And, and He doesn't just, you know, as I've said, He doesn't build lopsided Christians. He's developing in us His fruit, which is all of these things. So we can't say, well, I have this one, but I don't have that one. And I have two of them out of, you know, nine or something. Um, so I think I'm, you know, three out of nine isn't too bad. But the Lord wants us and He's developing all of these within us. So, we, we can judge our spiritual growth by how much these things are increasing in our lives, as well as the life that produces them. So how have we grown? It's something that I desire is to not be a stagnant Christian, not to be uh, just, you know come to a certain point. And to be honest with you, some of you know me well enough to know that it is sort of my nature that I was born with. Uh, I, I appear to have a natural contentment. Now we use the word contentment and we think, well, that's a good word. We should be content. But really, what that is in my own fallen nature is an apathy. I'm, I'm one of those guys, my wife gives me a hard time. She's not here today, so she can't defend herself. But, uh, but this is directed at me. She often says, you, you have a habit of doing a project 90% and then it just never gets finished. Now, I have to confess I'm somewhat guilty of that. And I know some of you are ribbing your husband right now. So um, maybe that's something that... But, you know, we, I have this sort of, well, it's good enough. I don't want to be a good enough Christian. You know, and so... And, and we do that. We grow to a level and we say, well, you know, now I've, I've cleaned up some of those habits I had and, and I go to church and I, you know, I, I think I look respectable as a Christian. And, and so that's probably good enough. But the... The work the Holy Spirit wants to do in our life never stops until we reach heaven. Because, honestly, none of us are good enough. Even after being saved, we, we have to grow. And so I have often prayed, Lord, help me not to be apathetic. Help me not to be complacent. Not get satisfied with just a, a level of Christianity that, that looks respectable. 
I know that there needs to be more thorough change within my heart. I know that. And when we came, when I started studying the, the next word in our list here, this was one that kind of hits me between the eyes. Because it's something that I certainly need to grow in. Last week I had thought in my mind that I would do, uh, all we have left is verse 23, meekness and temperance. I thought, well, I can combine that. I can do both of them and, and we'll finish this off. And some of you may wish that I would have done that. But the fact is, I started studying about meekness and I couldn't get past it. So I want to speak to you a little bit about meekness this morning. I have, it's not a great outline, but um, I'll try to give it some so we can sort of work our way. And it helps me at least, helps my logical progression, uh, trying to not just meander around through this subject, which is easy to do, but I want to try to kind of give it a little bit of structure. So I wrote down, first of all, an explanation. We got to define the word meekness. And I, as I considered it for a while, I was thinking that if you ask the average Canadian, what does the word meekness mean? I think they'd have a hard time figuring that out. And I think one of the biggest reasons why we don't know what meekness means is because we really don't like the word. I think it's not a word that's very popular, especially in the secular world. They don't look upon meekness as a, as a virtue that is valuable. At least that's the vibe that I get from the world is that, you know, you're, you should be self-assertive, proud, you know, um, and all of those kind of really sort of, um, <clears throat> what's, the, what's another word for it? Proud is, of course, the best word for it. But, you know, we, we tend to be uh, self-promoting, high-minded, uh, self-assertive, aggressive. That's, that's sort of the mentality, and I think in the Western world, and at least I don't know what the rest of the world is like, but, but in the world that I grew up in, uh, that's, that's sort of ingrained in you. I grew up in, in the United States, as a lot of you know, and uh, you, you've forgiven me for that, I think. But um, I, can, I can say this, because I am an American. In America, and I think it's worldwide widely known, uh, there tends to be, even amongst Christians, this sort of this spiritual pride, this sort of aggressive uh, demeanor. It's funny, my daughter, they were up for the wedding last week, and I was talking, and she lives in Texas. And uh, she said to me, Sarah, said, um, we had a, I don't even know how we got on the subject, but she said, we have a uh, young parents Sunday school class. And we were going, they were going through that Sermon on the Mount where I read in Matthew chapter 5. And she said, we read about uh, turning the other cheek. And the class began to discuss that. And somebody said something about teaching that to their children. And the parents, she said, it became a very kind of uncomfortably heated discussion. Because some parents said, no, if, if somebody bullies my ch- child, I'm going to tell them to fight back, you know. Uh, to take them out, you know, I'm going to tell them to fight, and, you know, teach them how to punch and bite and kick and all these things, and you, no way I'm going to let them just walk all over my child. 
And I think there's a lot of folks that have that mentality. If I am honest, I had that mentality. And I know we, we have a hard time saying, well, you know, we, we shouldn't be a doormat. We shouldn't be, you know, just letting people push us around. I remember my, my mom, uh, I have a brother that's a year and a half younger than me, but we were the exact same size. He's actually a little bigger than me now. But I never let him, I never let him uh, learn that he probably could take me. I always made him think that I could take him, you know. But uh, so when we were young, we would pick on one another like brothers do. And my mom, she, would, she finally would get so uh, frustrated. She didn't know how to do, handle us. You know, we got 12, 13 years old, boys, we were fighting. And she would tell my brother Jack, she'd say, Jack, defend yourself. <laughs> and I was like, Mom, don't, don't do that. <laughs> but, you know, we, this term of meekness is not one that we really like. And yet, the Bible has much to say about it. It's um, an interesting word that we, we probably couldn't find a good answer for in, in our current culture. So I found it interesting that the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, uh, discussed this word and Aristotle said this about it. He said, meekness is the grace of being able to be, angry, to be able to be always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. That's an interesting thought. Um, the Bible does say, be angry and sin not. Can we be angry and not sin? Well, I think theoretically the answer is yes. But practically it's kind of hard. Because we, you know, selfish anger, which is most of the time when we're angry, is not meek, it's not godly. The wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. There are times when we should become angry and uh, passionate about certain things. But, you know, when you think about that, it's, it's, I think I can say it's pretty much never because of some offense against me. If I'm ever righteously angry, it's because of uh, some harm, some uh, blasphemy against God, some cause against somebody else. For those reasons, perhaps we could become righteously indignant. But whenever we are selfishly angry, we're not acting in meekness, and we are in grave danger of sin. The ancient Greeks also likened meekness to a domesticated animal. Now, some of you think you have domesticated animals, and some of you have some. I've seen some that live you know, in the house, but they're not always domesticated very well. But a domesticated animal is one that's, you know, trained to live under control and to obey commands. So those, those are not, you know, perfect answers on what meekness is, but they move in the right direction. Um, it is directly con- in contrast to arrogance and loftiness, uh, pride and self-assertiveness. Let me give you Webster's 1828 Dictionary's definition. He says it's soft. Softness of temper, mildness, gentleness, forbearance under injury and provocations. Think about that. Let me read that one more time. Softness of temper, mildness, gentleness, forbearance under injuries and provocation. 
I'll say more about that in a little bit. Now, there's some mistaken notions about uh, meekness. Let me give you just a few thoughts about what's, what it's not. It's not laziness or quiet apathy, like I say. I can appear to be meek. I can appear to be content. But that might be just simply uh, an apathy, a laziness. You know, I don't care about anything kind of attitude. That's not meekness per se. And, and you know, you can, you can have a demeanor, an outward demeanor of meekness, but God looks on the heart. And we need to be meek and lowly of heart like the Lord. It's not... Um, now, here's the popular definition most preachers say. Meekness is not weakness. It's power under control. That's a good definition, but it needs a little defining. It's like, okay, you've got to give a definition to the definition. But it doesn't refer to someone who's weak in character or has a spirit of compromise. Somebody who says, you know, we need peace at any price. That's not what we're talking about when we say meekness either. That's what the, what the Lord is talking about. Sometimes the, the left, you know, the political left in the world, uh, talk about, you know, being kind and, and everybody loving one another. But if you listen to them for more than two minutes, you realize they're not at all meek. There's no meekness there. And so, I want to just give you a, a little bit of a, an idea of what meekness is by looking at some examples. So, first, our first thought was um, an explanation. Let's look at a demonstration. Think with me, and you can turn there if you like, but think with me, you probably know the story. In Genesis chapter 12, you remember that it, long before God ever said to Moses... Uh, to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, and he was going to bring them to a promised land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Long before that ever happened, God told Abraham to get out of the country in which he lived. He said to uh, leave his country and to come to a land that he would show him, and a land that he brought him to, and then a land that he promised him, that he would give it to him as a possession. That's why it was called the promised land. Because it was promised first to Abraham. And God brought Abraham into the land and he said to basically look to the north, look to the south, look to the west, look to the east. All this land you see, Abraham, I will give thee and to thy seed after thee. That's quite a good promise, you know. Property is still very valuable. I'm sure it was very valuable in that day. And so Abraham was promised this land. That's Genesis chapter 12. In chapter 13, we read that he had a nephew named Lot, who uh, the Bible says had great possessions, just like his uncle Abraham. And it says that there arose a strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle. So there was this this strife there going on. Do you remember what Abraham said? He said to Lot, look here, Lot. This is my land. It's not big enough for the both of us and you need to leave. Is that what he said? No. No, Abraham said, Lot, you tell me what land you want. If you go over there, I'll go over here. If you go over there, I'll stay over here. But you get to choose, Lot. And so Lot chose the well-watered plains of Jordan. 
and later ended up in Sodom and Gomorrah, and you know that story. But Abraham stayed, you know, he chose, Lot did choose the, the best land as far as for cattle. He chose the well-watered plains, the green pastures, which kind of meant that Abraham had to take second rate, you know. And here's Abraham, the one who was given the promise. Here's Abraham, the elder. Here's, here's Abraham who commanded the respect of his nephew. And yet he said, you get to choose, Lot, and whatever you choose, I'll, I'll take whatever's left. You see, that's, that's meekness. We see meekness in the example of Abraham. I'll give you another example, and that is of David. David's one, this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. David was being hunted by King Saul. Saul wanted to kill him. Saul was jealous of him. And if you know the story, and I hope you do, if not, you can look at, look at it in 1 Samuel chapter 24 and chapter 26. This happened actually twice, where David was in hiding, and Saul just happened to uh, come to the place where David was, and he didn't know David was there, but he, he came in once into a cave and in an area where he went to sleep. And David and his man, his right-hand man, they snuck up so close that at one time he cut the garment of Saul, cut his, you know, his robe hem off. Another time he took his spear and his uh, something else, his bolster, whatever that is. Um, he took those things, and I mean, obviously what, what we see there is he could have killed Saul very easily and would have been king. And would have, you know, I mean, here's Saul trying to kill him. Everybody would have justified it. Everyone would have said, uh, David, you, you know, you definitely had the right to do that. But David said, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, David kind of, I think it was somewhat in his heart when he went there, but when he got there and he looked at Saul, he said, I cannot touch the, the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to take the matters into my hands. If God wants him dead, God's going to have to do it. But I'm not doing it. That's one of my favorite stories. You know, when the Bible talks about David being a man after God's own heart, I see the heart of God in that graciousness David showed, the meekness that David showed there. When you think of Moses, you might think of a great leader, you know, a man who is bold enough to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. But did you know in Numbers 12 and verse 3, it says, now the man Moses was very meek, above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. God called Moses the most meek man. He was more meek. He was meeker. Is that a word? I don't know. Uh, he was meeker than all the other men of the earth. I see that in Moses. I can see it in Moses. For one thing, he was... You know, whenever Moses was challenged... And he was challenged on a few occasions where they said, Moses, who do you think you are? How come you're the boss? Remember those times when, uh, who was it, Dathan and uh, Korah, those guys? And even one time his own sister and brother, Aaron and Miriam, said uh, to, to uh, Moses, you know, you, you're too, you got too big for your britches. That's what we used to say in America anyway. I don't know if they say that. <laughs> But Moses, what would he do? He'd fall on his face. He'd cry and pray. And he'd say, look, let's see, if, if I'm the Lord's choice, then I'm just doing what God wants. 
He didn't demand their respect. He just said, remember how he said one time, get Aaron's rod and get a rod from all these uh, other captains of the tribes and put them in there. And the rod that buds, that grows forth buds, that's God's choice. And it was Aaron's rod that budded. And, and they even put that in the, in the Ark of the Covenant. Just to kind of remind the Israelites that Moses didn't self-appoint himself to this position. God put him there. But he wasn't self-promoting. He wasn't self-appointed. He wasn't self, uh, you know, uh, trying to justify. He just simply said, it's up to God. And if God wants to... Remember when... Remember when uh, a lot of thoughts come to my mind here. I'll, I'll move along here. But um, I'll give you this one other thought. Remember when Absalom chased David out of Jerusalem, wanted to be the king? And when David was going, there was a, a descendant of Saul who was still a little bit bitter that Saul died and David's now king. And he cursed David. And, of course, again, his, you know, one of the brothers of Joab said, do you want me to go over there and kill him? And David said, what do I have to do with you guys? You know, you're always wanting to kill somebody. And he said, no. He, and David said this. This is just going from memory, so I can't quote exactly. But David said, God has pushed me out. God is, and, if, and if God wants to bring me back, He'll bring me back. But let Him curse. You see, that's, that's meekness. That's that power under control. He could have took the guy's head off. But he acted gently. Obviously, we see this most of all in our Lord Jesus. I'll just read you a couple verses. In Matthew 11, Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. In Matthew 21, he says, Tell ye daughters of Zion, behold, thy king cometh unto thee meek and sitting upon an ass and a colt the foal of an ass. You remember that Webster said it was forbearance under injuries and provocations. In other words, when you are injured or provoked, uh, you forbear, you withhold lashing back. No one is a greater example than that, of that than Jesus. How many times they provoked him, how many times that they came and, and tried to catch him at his words, and, and you know, he knew their heart. He knew the treachery of their heart. He recognized all of those things. And yet you never find the Lord lashing back. He certainly could have. Remember James and John uh, kind of like uh, David's men, they said, hey, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and you know, wipe them out? And Jesus said, you guys don't know what spirit you're of. <coughs> the Lord was very meek and mild and gentle. He spoke the truth in love. He spoke the truth without compromise. But He never just, you know, lambast- lambasted, is that how we say it? Um, you know, he never just blew up and never just lost his cool on them. That's what I would have done. If you think about it, I mean, he who is God in the flesh. Can you imagine? Here's Creator God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and nothing was created except by Him. And here's His creation, little puny man coming up and, you know, mocking and spitting and and tempting and uh, calling them all kinds of blasphemy and all these things. 
how would we have responded? I know how I would want to respond. I would say, who do you think you are? Do you not know who I am? And if you don't know, I can give you a taste of it, you know. <laughs> but that's not how Jesus responded. He was soft and gentle with the woman taken in adultery. He was soft and gentle with Zacchaeus, with Judas, with Peter. And thankfully, He is that way with us. Not excusing sin, not condoning evil, but God is gracious and meek. Alright, so we have to close. We've seen the explanation, the demonstration. I want to give you quickly just a little bit of application. This meekness is not a natural quality. It's the work of the Spirit of God. And it transcends uh, temperaments, personalities. In other words, an extrovert can be meek. An introvert might appear meek on the inside, but I mean on the outside, but God can make a meek on the, out, on the inside. And let me, let me have you do this. Go to Matthew chapter 5 where we start and we'll just end there. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. Matthew 5, 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I think there's somewhat of a progression there. The road to meekness begins with poor in spirit. What does that mean? It basically means that I have a, a right evaluation of myself. When I evaluate myself in the light of God's Word, when I see me as God sees me, I'll see me like... You know, when, remember when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up? He said, woe is me, I'm undone. Remember what Job said? He said, I've heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, and, uh, but now my eye seeth thee, wherefore I abhor myself. When we recognize ourselves and see ourselves, evaluate ourselves as God sees us, every one of us are sinful and undone and in need of grace. And when we come in that fashion, which is how we must come to the Lord, the song, Just As I Am, says, Just as I am, poor, wretched, blind, sight, riches, healing of the mind, yea, all I need in Thee I find, O Lamb of God, I come. James said we have to receive with meekness the engrafted Word, which is able to save your soul. It takes a humility to come to Christ. We have to recognize our spiritual condition as lost, as sinful, as needed, in need of a Savior. And it's really, that's the path also to meekness. When I recognize myself as I really am, um, I can then respond to others with a meek spirit. I remember reading Charles Spurgeon, and I, I tried to look up this, I couldn't find it last night, but I... I remember reading Spurgeon. He said something like this. There was somebody who was uh, slandering Spurgeon to somebody. And a man came back and said to Charles Spurgeon, Hey, this man is saying bad things about you. 
And Spurgeon said, whatever the man is saying, I'm much worse than anything he can really say. I know myself. And God knows my heart. And whatever you might slander me, I'm worse than, than that in the sight of God. You can call me a liar and I've told more lies than you will ever know. You can call me, uh, you know, whatever, unkind, hateful. I've been more hateful than you ever know. And so when we really see ourselves as God sees us, we begin to respond to others with a meekness. Because who, who am I to demand my rights? Who am I to demand my, uh, you know, that I be respected? I don't deserve it anyway. And so meek, the meek are not sensitive about themselves. They're not touchy always trying to defend themselves or prove their right. They don't possess a self-pity. I went to Bible college with a guy who was uh, far more talented than, really the most talented man in the class, honestly. He was a, had a beautiful voice, could sing. He got me through Greek class. I wouldn't have passed if it wasn't for him. <laughs> he was much smarter than I was. He was, you know, if, if we didn't do this in Bible college, but he would have been voted the, the most likely to succeed. And I don't say this with any kind of uh, pride. It breaks my heart. But today, this same man doesn't go to church, is out of the will of God. He got a, he got a position in a church just after we graduated. And he was there for about three years, and he left that church, went to another one, had another great position, and... But all the time, he felt like they didn't appreciate him like they should. They didn't treat him as good as he thought he should be treated. He had so much to offer. They should have recognized how lucky they were to have him. And they should have uh, treated him better. Sadly, that was his attitude. And because of that, he fell out of the will of God. My friends, I'm just saying this morning, we should be meek. The Lord it was meek. And He wants us to... He, the Spirit of God, that fruit He's producing in us, is meekness. It's not natural to us. But I hope you'll allow the Spirit of God to work meekness in your life. I know these chairs are hard and you've been patient. Thank you. Let's stand together and we'll pray.